0: Well, like many of you, I assume, I am just a little bit obsessed with the Broadway musical, Hamilton. I've only gotten to see it once live, which is frankly never enough, but thank goodness for Disney Plus, who during COVID gave us all the gift of this live uh, recorded performance from Broadway. And, I've watched it at least four times, and the chances are good if you ever want to hang out and you've never seen it, that I will drag you to the basement and make you watch it with me again. And then we'll just for fun sing the lyrics to every single song because you know, that's what friends do. It's really, it's really remarkable. I cannot get enough of it. There's just something about it. It has something for everyone. It has history and murder and intrigue and it has a love story and rap music and there's gender and racial equality in it and there's a gorgeous choreography and dancing and brilliant, brilliant writing. I could go on and on. You just cannot help but at the end leap to your feet with this show. I think one of the reasons, by the way, that it's so popular is that it shows this really uniquely human side of our founding fathers. This is not like a glammed up, cleaned up sort of history book. This is really, uh, works so well because it shows us how ordinary people, I think, smart maybe even brilliant but ordinary people did a most extraordinary thing and i love it also because we get to see people that we wouldn't otherwise see people who wouldn't otherwise be named in the history books the wives the lovers the unwed mothers children poets immigrants they're all doing their part to sort of push this movement forward. And and they all know that it could well cost them their lives. There's one uh, song uh, that I particularly, it comes to mind this morning, and it has a verse that says, I may not live to see our glory, but I will gladly join the fight. And when our children tell our story, they'll tell the story of tonight. Now if you are a fan of Hamilton, that's gonna probably be your earworm for today. You're probably already singing it to yourself because I know I am. So I'm sorry for that. But 2,000 years before those lines were written by the unbelievably brilliant and talented Lin-Manuel Miranda, another band of rebels was contemplating what it meant to push a movement forward. Except that this movement was not for their glory, and it wasn't their story. This was the Jesus movement. And sometimes we forget just how ordinary the disciples were, how Jesus called together people just like you and me and sent them on a mission to transform the world and the trajectory of history forever. Now. I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder if like calling together super ordinary people was really a good idea. I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit cavalier? Is it even smart to call people like you and me? I don't know if I was in charge. I think that I might have, uh, those, the disciples might not have been the people I would have picked necessarily, right? And this is a group of, of disciples who didn't exactly have their act together all the time. They show us time and time again in scripture how they don't always understand what in the world Jesus is even talking about. They fall asleep on the job. They shoo people away from Jesus that they think don't belong there. They argue about who's Jesus' favorite, who's going to get to heaven and who's not. But Jesus saw them a little bit different. Jesus intentionally drew together a band of wonderfully misfit humans to do the work. And we find ourselves this morning with this scripture reading with those very humans locked in fear unable to see a way forward, staring at each other within the four walls of the room that they're sequestered in and staring down a very uncertain future. Gee, does that sound familiar? I don't know a human on the planet who hasn't been there before. The disciples have just learned that the tomb is empty. And to say that they're confused would be a gross understatement. The natural thing that we do when we are feeling anxious, confused, terrified, threatened, is to hunker down and lock the doors, to become focused on our own security, rather than on the risky places where we might be being called. But here's the truth jesus can't be stopped by our locked doors he walks right in and when jesus enters into the locked room where the disciples are he does two things he offers them peace and he immediately sends them out into the world that's the way jesus comes to us right in the midst of our fear anxieties, pain, doubts, confusion. He comes speaking peace, breathing peace into our anxious lives, breathing on us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus keeps sending us out of our safe, locked rooms into a world that, like us, desperately needs a little peace. And I want you to note something here that's really important. Jesus' sending out of the disciples is not conditional. He doesn't say to them, okay, before you go though, you need to say this certain prayer. He doesn't say to them, "Um, you know, I'm gonna need an apology for those three times you denied me, Peter. He doesn't say you need to be experts in what is written in scripture. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus simply says, peace be with you. Now the work begins. It's as though Jesus is saying to them and to us, you have doubts, you have some confusion, some fears, you have a little self-loathing, you're worried about being unworthy, Are you too focused on yourself sometimes? you got a need for certitude? None of that matters. Jesus gives the disciples and us all the same commission. Go and make disciples. And boy, do they. It is not an exaggeration to say that Christianity spread like wildfire after that. Historians tell us that the OG-12, the original apostles, traveled to Ethiopia, Armenia, Turkey, Egypt, Greece, and all over the Roman Empire. And we don't hear about that just in scripture, by the way. This is in history books. Recorded historical documents from the ancient world tell us about stories of the disciples spreading the gospel all over Africa, India, England, all within just a few decades of the resurrection. By the year 60 of the Common Era, Christianity was found all over eastern Mediterranean and as far west as Rome. And by the middle of the next century, the very next century, it was found in most major cities in the Roman Empire. And by the early 300s, it was the official religion of the Roman Empire. So, how does a ragtag band of misfits, spectacular only in their ordinariness, scared of their own shadows, scared to be known as followers of the capital O, one who sent them, scared of their own doubts and doubting their own scars, wind up transforming the religious cultural, and philosophical landscape of the entire world in just 300 short years? Well, here's how. They were never the object of faith. The invitation is not to follow them, but to follow Jesus. Jesus had shown his disciples how to live. He showed them how to love. They had been with him when he taught the crowds, when he healed the sick, when he raised up the lowly and loved on the least of these. And now here he was, crucified and resurrected, standing before them saying, now it's your turn. Just as the Father has sent me, now i send you they knew what to do they had watched him they would do what he did keep in mind after all this is the resurrected christ sending them out with the gift of the holy spirit the advocate the guide this was not some powerful world leader here today forgotten tomorrow This was not some fly-by-night motivational teacher or political organizer. This was the Christ resurrected before them, breathing the breath of new life into them and sending them out into the world. How could they not be on fire with the gospel message? At this point, their expectations of God would have been absolutely limitless God clearly had no boundaries, so neither would they. God worked around the world, so would they. They saw God's image, the Imago Dei, in every person that they encountered, so they invited everyone in. There is no Jew, no Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus, Paul said in the letter to the Galatians. Everyone's invited and included because God does not differentiate between God's beloved children. So neither would they. For these early Christians, no one was too powerful to reach. No one was beyond help. No abandoned child was ever going to be left behind. Do you know it was the earliest Christians that inspired by the first disciples in those immediate years afterwards? They were the ones who started the social programs for people who were suffering, for the sick and the poor. Even while they were being persecuted in the middle of the second century, they had widespread programs that focused on caring for the least of these, for the sick and the poor. It was the Christians who started the first hospitals. It was Christians who set up systems to distribute food for the needy. And this was just a few generations removed from Peter and Matthew and James and John and Bartholomew and Paul and all of the other 12. These early Christians were present to the world's pain and they worked to relieve human suffering even under the threat of death. Because they knew if God could raise Jesus from the dead, well, then anything is possible. They had remarkable courage. They had remarkable vision. And their vision, by the way, was never one in which they operated alone. The sense that I can just work for my own faith and I don't need anyone else was not a concept that existed then. That's a relatively modern idea, thanks to the Enlightenment. But that concept was nowhere to be found in ancient times. The idea of extreme individuality and my personal convictions taking precedence over the good of the community just simply did not exist. Instead, they believed that they were caught up in something so big that it bound them together as a family. And that the world was hungry for what they had to offer. That people would join them in this exciting work because it was life changing and world changing. And they also believed, and here's the kicker, that they would be face to face again with Jesus in the next life. They were eager to tell people about this. Can you imagine? If we could just recapture a little bit of that zeal. Imagine if we considered ourselves so connected, so one in Christ and sharing Christ's love. Just because we believed so much that that is what Jesus sent us out to do. It would change the world. It would change the way we saw churches. It would change the way we viewed other Christians and other denominations. It would change the way we interact with people. It would change everything. It did change everything. Jesus didn't send the disciples out to create church budgets or pick out carpet for the new sanctuary or organize potlucks or put the fun in fundraising. Those are all super important parts of being church. But the mission of the church is to be for the world what Jesus was, to do for the world what Jesus did. The mission of the church is to accept radically, to care extravagantly, and to love wildly to take what we do in here and fill the streets out there. That's the mission. And don't be fooled by the word love. Don't be lulled into thinking that love is just a placebo or a feel-good way of being or that it's easy. Don't think that love is reserved for people or causes that you're especially fond of. Love, the kind of love that is required of us, is a rigorous calling. Refusal to love separates us from God. It just does. When I see Christians behaving in ways that are racist or condemning or hateful or ugly, narrow-minded, I just wonder if they've forgotten what Jesus really said what he meant when he sent us out into the world. Because the kind of love that we're talking about is why Jesus calls his disciples the light of the world. He said, let your light shine before everyone. So is that what our actions are doing when we show up in the world, sent, called, to fill the streets with love? Still, that can be dangerous and scary to let people see us, to let our light shine so brightly. I get it. Being sent into the world as a disciple of Christ can be risky. Just ask the early martyrs. But, as Brene Brown, the wonderful writer and researcher says, taking that kind of risk is not nearly as hard as getting to the end of our lives and asking ourselves, what if I had shown up? What if I would have just gone all in instead of locking myself away? So the question for us today is, how do I show up where God is calling me? where do i need to live this gospel message of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and kindness and patience all the things that jesus calls us to remember the gospel means good news it's not good news for everybody it's not the gospel so i encourage you to start reading the bible even with a mindset of good news don't look for messages of condemnation or hatred or exclusion. That's the opposite of what Jesus calls us to, and it is simply not in Scripture. Remember, the invitation is to follow Jesus. Stay true to that. In everything, Jesus is calling people to live joy-filled lives centered on him and his gospel message. And he teaches us in scripture exactly how to do that. Here's a hint. It's all about relationships. It's all about relationships that are filled with grace and love. So when we do what Christians from the very beginning have always done, then suddenly the resurrection makes a lot of sense. Because the idea of God creating new things makes a lot of sense. And people begin to see that their lives can be transformed, even amidst fears and confusion and doubts. And then like Thomas, we can proclaim, my Lord and my God. Because we see the transformation of newness before us. So this day, my prayer is that we all go forth today, sent into the world, to fill the streets with that gospel message, amen.